Hey, well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor uh, here at GPC, and um, so glad to have you here. Thank you for making your way to Grace Point. For all our volunteers from BBS this week, Greg alluded to that earlier. Thank you so much. Incredible week for our kids. Uh, for our guests, we love having you here. For those listening online later, thank you for doing so. Um, I remember when I was uh, coming back to the United States from being in Barbados, one of the things that uh, was a shock to me culturally was walking into the cafeteria in the high school in a public school. Um, just for that bare effect, that was, that was shocking in and of itself. But in the high school, they actually had this box sitting in the corner that would play music uh, at, at our high school, and it was called the jukebox. And for those who are not familiar with that thing, it is strange, but it is actually true. You would put some money in and select, you know, number 42 or 415 and press the button, and then that song begins to play, whatever it is. And Almost, almost without fail, every lunch period we would hear from Pink Floyd in our school. You know the song, right? We don't need no education. I think it's called Another Brick in the Wall. And you know, I don't even remember the, the lyrics to it all. I just know it kept going over and over again, like we don't need no education. And I thought, well, clearly you do, because that's grammatically incorrect. You don't, and that's a double negative in that phrase. So you're actually saying you do need education. So like the whole thing is off, and it bothered me, but I still ate my lunch and tried to make it through that. But that kept going. But there's another song that, that kept coming too. And this was a different song. And this was a, a song that um, was from a band that uh, has some interesting background, interesting history. Like this band actually, they almost didn't form. They, they formed, they almost never took off because they went to their, um, their director, their leader, their campaign manager, if you will. Just their, they were just a garage band, like all, all bands start. And they said to him, you know what, we... Um, we don't believe that playing rock and roll music is what God would have us to do. Like, we're giving it up. Clearly, there needs to be more for our lives than just playing rock and roll music. And so we're done. To which the, their, um, their coordinator said, is this God telling you this or is this just you? Because if it's God, then I need God to tell me what to do with the rest of the calendar year that is now fully booked for you. And they said, oh, well, we're going to need to pray about this one. And so as they prayed through whether they should continue to play rock and roll or do something else, they decided to continue to play their music. And they wrote a bunch of songs that became incredibly popular. And this song in particular played in my high school cafeteria as well. So if you, we're only going to listen to a minute of it. But if you grew up in the 80s or 90s, and this song I think has played even since then, then this song will become familiar to you in a hurry, and you will have an instinct, perhaps, to sing along. And that might be okay. Actually, U2 and Bono went on and sang with um, a church in Harlem that rewrote that, and it was an interesting piece to see how they did that. But this, as Bono would say, is actually an anthem of doubt more than faith. And their point is, in, 
in the Christian world, often we sing songs that just say, God is great, it's amazing, just keep trusting in him and your life is going to work out well. And this song, when I first heard it in the high school cafeteria, I thought, well, that's like, that's like a love song. I mean, like, he's saying, you know, I've climbed the highest mountain, I've scaled these city walls just to be with you. Then I'm like, well, the chorus doesn't make sense, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You breaking up with your girl right away? Like, that doesn't make sense. And I came to realize that what, what, what you two is reflecting in this song is really a deep truth that hits all of us, which is why it has become, I believe, so ridiculously popular over the years that I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That the you certainly isn't a girl, it isn't a guy, but it is that place where your life can build from. It is that place where you find meaning and you find significance, you find peace to exist you know, their music video goes on to show all the places where they try to find peace and meaning and all that, but they still haven't found what they are looking for. And that discontent of the soul, if you have lived long enough, that is commonplace for us to find the place where I can actually be at peace and rest and be very content with who it is that I am in this world. And so this song and this idea is actually perfect setup for where we're going this morning in the fourth part, third part of our series called Trust Me, that there's a guy in the Old Testament named Abraham who, despite his incredible faith, despite being a man of incredible faith, had some deep-seated fears that he struggled significantly with, and that in this section of his life that we're going to look at, we're going to see how Abraham tries to deal with this and how God tries to step in to give him that place that he was looking for, to find a place where his life can be built solidly on a foundation that will not shake or be deterred. So I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 15. If you don't own a Bible, that's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew near you. That's our gift to you. If you don't own one, you can look it up on your device or in a real Bible if you have one. Uh, real Bible. Those are real Bibles on your devices, by the way. But I meant a paper Bible, but I think you know what I mean. You can find it in a Bible, whatever iteration of that you have. Uh, the, Genesis is the first book in the Bible, first book in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 15, and we're just going to begin right away at verse 1. The way I do it is I'll jump in um, to the text here and there just to make a few comments, and we will, we will carry right on. So Genesis 15, verse 1. Um, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It said this, do not be, what's that word? Afraid. All right, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, or other versions have your benefactor, and that's another way to see that word, and your very great reward. So let's pause it right here. So Abram is essentially sitting there, and the word of the Lord comes to him in a vision and says, do not be afraid, Abram. Which is an interesting beginning point because in chapter 14, chapter 14 is where Abram just conquered these kings. And we told that story last week a little bit, but Abram got together 318 of his trained men, and he took on three kings, an alliance of three kings, and he destroyed them to get his nephew back. And so I don't know about you, but if I'm a warrior uh, like Abram, if I'm looking at someone like Abram, and I think, dude, you just took care of an alliance of kings, you're almost a superpower in and of yourself at this point, what exactly does someone like that have to be afraid of? Not military might. I mean, you just clearly demonstrated you can handle yourself militarily. You can handle yourself. Riches, he's got enough to employ and feed all of these people. He's a pretty wealthy guy. What do you have to be afraid of, Abram? What is it underneath you that really would cause God to begin a vision with you and say, do not be afraid, Abram. Don't be afraid because I am your shield or your benefactor. I'm the one who will benefit you. I'm the one you can look to and you are a very great reward. Why does God 
begin there. And you see why here in just a second, verse 2. But Abram said, because Abram knows exactly what is on his heart, he knows exactly what he's missing, and he knows exactly what he wished were different about him that he feels like he can do nothing about. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. This is Abram's biggest fear. His biggest fear is that all of the things that I have will go to this servant. And not just that they will go there. The biggest fear underneath that and the biggest concern, the biggest unsettled part of his heart is that he doesn't have any children. He has a longing to want children, to have them. Clearly he has tried over years and years and years to have kids and he's not able to. And this is what Abram says, like, what can you give me? You're my benefactor, my very great reward, God. If you give me more, if you give me more things, they're not even going to go to my family. They're going to go to this servant boy here, and this isn't even a part of my family. So what exactly, how exactly can you help me? Because for year upon year upon year, decade upon decade, we have tried to have children. We cannot. So even if you were to give me more stuff, it would only make it worse. Because the hole in my heart, is too big to be filled with the things that this world can offer. So how can you even honestly help me? To which God says, you're right, I can't. Sorry, I got the wrong number. I'm going to call someone else instead. No, he doesn't. He says this. He says in verse 4, So then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Stop right there for a minute. And doesn't that sound, this right here, God, this is the making of a Disney movie right here. I mean, within two verses, we've gone from Abram saying, you can't help me, to now, oh, look at the stars, I see them, I believe it. Now cue the music run the credits, and the, the game is over. We have just finished the movie, and everybody is happy. Abram's life has been restored. His hope has been restored, and everything is awesome. Right? I mean, this is, kind of the, this is the way the text reads. Abram believed it. God said, I see your problem. Don't worry. Let's go look at the stars. Count them. Those are your kids. And Abram believed the Lord and credited it to him as righteousness. <laughs> Here's what happens, actually, just a few uh, chapters later. turns out, for the next 15 years, at least, Abram still remains childless from the point of this vision. And here's what happens in Genesis 17. When God comes back to, Genesis, when God comes back to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 17, here's the interaction. Abraham fell face down interacting with God, and, and he laughed, and he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? This is now 15 years later, and the promise in Genesis 15 that I'm, you're going to have all these kids, and even 15 years later, Abraham is still kind of shaking his head. And this is strange because it feels like Abraham believed God, and yet still 15 years later, he's asking the question, are you serious, God? <laughs> like you, I'm sorry, did you just tell me I'm going to have a kid? I mean, I'm, I'm going on a hundred and Sarah is going on 90, not 19, 90. This, this isn't going to happen. 
We have to ask if you've ever felt some of the same way that Abraham has. If I can be so kind of bold as to kind of push in a little bit to your life, if we could pause it for a minute and ask the question, have you ever had the kind of hole in your heart that Abraham does? You ever lost a family member? Spouse? Child? To the point where it feels like, seriously, what else really matters right now? You ever come up on disability yourself and your career is gone? Be like, I'm getting along. I mean, I'm waking up in the morning and brushing my teeth most days and eating. I'm living, but I'm not really living. Like, God, what can you, what can you give me? When the things that I was hoping for are gone, like, what can you give me at that level when my heart is broken so much? And then God makes this promise. And Abraham, if we're honest, believes kind of. That's my summary. He believes kind of. He believes that God could do this because that's what we read in Genesis 15. But when it comes down to it in Genesis 17, we see that he's still kind of laughing to himself. I'm not sure this could actually, actually be done. Let me go back to Genesis 15, verse 6 again, and ask a couple questions of this. When Abraham believed the Lord in verse 15, excuse me, verse 6 of chapter 15, and God credited it to him as righteousness, I need to ask the question, what does that mean? And look at that, because that's probably the most important verse of Abraham's entire life story. That somehow in this transaction that Abram believed God, and God took that belief and credited it to him, as righteousness. In the New Testament, Paul begins to explain this, and Paul asks a question about Abraham, and I like the way he puts it, and he writes it this way. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? What is it that Abraham, when he was alive, discovered about faith and works? What is it that he discovered about how faith works and how belief works? And he goes on, he writes this, he says, if in fact... Abraham was justified by works. He had something to boast about, but not before God. He says, what does Scripture say? It says, and then it, he quotes what we just read, that Abraham believed God and it was credited, it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, so what does that all mean, Paul? Well, I'm glad you asked. And here's what he says in verse 4. He says, now to the one who works... Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, if you're confused at all, I would understand. Let me try to back this thing up quick, because Paul is unloading a lot of concepts pretty quickly, at least for me, I will say that. He says, those who work, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but an obligation. So in other words, think of it this way, that when you work, your boss pays you, right? Like, hopefully. If you were to work for me and get to the end of the day, and I agree to pay you 100 bucks for coming to work for me, and you get to the end of the day, and you're working for me, and I give you $100, you don't say thank you for the gift, because it's not a gift. You've worked for it, and you get what you deserve. And Paul's saying the same idea, that when you work, you get what is due you, that, that is due you this way. And, and here's then what he says as well, that in kind of the same way that when you trust God, 
grants you righteousness. When you trust, God grants you righteousness. That the, the trust thing, as he says in verse 5, the one who trusts God, God who justifies in Galilee, their faith, that faith is credited as righteousness, which raises a whole other set of interesting questions. And this is why this really matters. That my question around this is this. When Paul is saying that when you trust, when you trust God, that God credits it as righteousness, that all of a sudden your life is made right when you trust, I have to ask the question to Paul. If you put it this way, Paul, if your work is like trust and your payment is like righteousness, if your boss pays you 100 bucks and Paul is likening that to what righteousness is, I have to ask the question, is, trust, is the act of trusting a work? Here's what I mean. There are some people in our world, and in my world too, who struggle to believe that God actually saves by grace without works. There's some of us, maybe you are part of this, or maybe you know people like this, who think that the way that you get saved, the way that you come to know God, is by believing enough and then maintaining your salvation enough. Continue to do the good works that get you there, and if, and here's the critical part, if you don't do enough, you will lose the salvation. If you don't do enough, that God will pull that from you. If you aren't faithful enough, if you aren't consistent enough, that there will come a time when God will pull that offer of salvation from you because ultimately your salvation is based on your work to do enough to know who God is. And Paul is saying that isn't how it works. It's just not how it works. Now, I want you to think about it this way, that all the way back in the, the, the Greek time, there was uh, Greeks, if you've ever done study Greek mythology, there was a guy named Zeus, and in the Greek world, the Greeks said, you know what, there are two different worlds. There's a world of animals and there's a world of human beings. With the animals, the animals tend to eat and kill each other a lot. So we don't really want that for the human beings, right? I mean, generally, we don't want that. So we want to give someone to the human beings to oversee them. And in the Greek world, Zeus gave this person named Dike, his daughter, to human beings so that human beings wouldn't kill each other. This is kind of weird. So Dike is actually the word, Greek word for righteousness. Dikaiosune is the word for righteousness. So here's what in the Greek world, righteousness is this idea that we get life, we have the vibrancy of life to live in great relationship both with one another and with, in the Greek world, the cosmos universe, okay, that righteousness is seen that way, that we have the, the opportunity to live well with one another. In the New Testament world, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, actually began to turn righteousness into works-based righteousness. Righteousness became understood as if you work hard enough and if you do the right thing, God blesses those who bless themselves. God honors those who honor themselves. If you work, you get what you get. In fact, in the rabbinic Judaism, the rabbis would say, even if, even if the laws are outdated, you need to follow them so that your character is developed. You know, for example, this year or this week, I learned that there's actually some laws in our, um, on our books that are incredibly old and outdated, such as this. Did you know that there can be a, a federal offense if you are a producer of ketchup and it is too runny? There are actually federal regulations relative to how runny ketchup can be. Did you know that? It actually can be a federal crime if your ketchup that you produce is too runny. And here's what rabbis would say about that in the New Testament. Is that outdated? Who cares? You still need to follow that, even if it's outdated, because in the following of it, it will discipline your character to become one who is more close to God. 
that righteousness became associated with how much work you do to maintain a relationship with God. And Paul is coming into this space, and he is changing the way righteousness is understood. He's changing the way that your footing is understood. He's changing how you see yourself relative to one another and to God. And he's saying this, and this is such a critical idea for Paul. He's saying the way that you relate to God, the way that you find finally what you're looking for, the way that you can get righteousness, the way that you can have a peace, the way that you can put your foot down and say, this is who I am. This is how God has made me. This is the place I can function from. This is how life can work and I can rest and find peace. There's no more striving for my soul. This is the place where I can find peace and righteousness finally. He's saying this righteousness is understood as God's covenant commitments to you. That is righteousness for Paul. That is righteousness in the New Testament, and that is righteousness also for Abraham. That how God covenants with you, that God's covenant with you is where you can rest, not in, not in how you are going to work to figure out how to be more beautiful, how to be stronger, how to be better in your business, how to be a better father, a better husband, a better wife, a better mom. All of the work that we do Paul is trying to help us understand when Abraham believed, not worked, when Abraham believed that God said, I'm going to give you a space to function. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And so if you're still open to Genesis 15, that is exactly what God does next. Genesis 15, verse 7. He establishes with Abraham a covenant. He also said to him, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? How can I know I'm going to get this land? And so the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half, and then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And so as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and this is so important. Abram fell into a sleep, in other words, he couldn't function. He was, no, he was not able to be a part of this covenant. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, this is very important because in the Old Testament, when you make a covenant with someone and you cut an animal in half, what you're doing is if I take a, a heifer and I cut it in half, you and I, if you and I are entering a covenant, we will walk through that, and in walking through that, we are essentially saying, may this happen to us if we break the covenant. If I don't pay you what is due and you don't give me the services that you say, then may you die and may I die. I'm making a covenant with you to my life that this will happen to us. We together recognize it. That would be a bilateral covenant. What God does is he puts Abraham in a deep sleep and he says, you fall asleep, I am going to walk through this covenant alone. This is a unilateral covenant. I alone take on the responsibilities for fulfilling this covenant. I alone am establishing that I am going to, as your God, I am the one who will establish you, not you. Nothing you will do will keep this covenant for you. This is an unconditional unilateral covenant. 
Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, and he said, To your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. A lot of ites in there. So this is foundational, that, that functionally God is saying, Abraham, I am going to give you and you this co- you only this covenant that I am coming to you to do this. This and Abrahamic covenant is the foundation for how God operates and he functions with his people. It becomes the very foundation of how people see God relating to us over the years. It becomes the foundation of where we can put our foot down and say, this is who God is. This is how God relates. He is the one who's made the move. When I blow it, when I screw up, when I can't handle it, when I don't do, when I start doing, when I have bad habits, when I can't break them, when I don't love the way I should, when I don't forgive the way I should, when I'm not patient like I should, when I can't carry my weight, when I can't, when I can't, when I can't, God has been the one who has passed through the animals. God alone has been the one who's established your covenant. God alone is saying, I have set a foundation for you so you can find what you're looking for. God alone. And in the New Testament, the news gets even better. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus picks this up and he builds on the promises of the Abrahamic old covenant. Uh, Abrahamic covenant, and he says this in Luke chapter 22. He says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, and Jesus said to the people in the room, and to anyone, anyone who would ever believe in him, this cup is the new covenant. A new covenant I give to you. This is a new covenant. You've heard about Abraham's covenant. I'm going to give you a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That Jesus invites you and invites me, invites anyone to say, just as just as people related to God through God's promise, foundational promise to them, so too there's a new covenant where I'm going to die for you. You're not going to die for you. You're not going to work for you. I'm going to die for you so that you may have life and so that you may relate to me in a way that doesn't depend on your work, doesn't depend on your striving, it doesn't depend on your awesomeness. This is why when Jesus makes a statement on the cross, when he says, it is finished, it's done. It's done. The way of relating to God, the way of connecting to him, the work that God needed to do to bring you and me in relationship to him has been completed. And so I have this question as I was thinking about this idea that that what I'm trying to tell you and what I'm trying to grasp myself is that God has established this foundation upon which I can exist, where fear cannot reach. And the way to get to this foundation is not by being in attendance at church enough, or even for me, being faithful in speaking enough or in leading enough. The way to get to this place isn't by being productive enough, efficient enough, sharp enough, intellectual enough, strong enough, insightful enough, beautiful enough, strong enough, whatever enough. The way to get to this place isn't by any of those enoughs. But the way to get to this place, and here's the hard and tricky part, is the way to get to this place is by belief, by trust, alone. And it requires this strange stripping away of all the things that I tend to do for God to kind of earn the sense of my my self-worth. And so I was asking myself this question, I want to have you consider it this morning as well, that what if, what if all of a sudden you could no longer do what you can currently do? What if all of a sudden you lost 
the ability to pray anymore? What if all of a sudden you lost the ability to even attend church anymore? What if all of a sudden you lost the ability even to be considerate of the people around you or to give financially the way that you give? What if all of a sudden you lost the ability to have those sensitivities? What if you are now a jerk? Does your being kind and your being good and your being nice and your effort and your trying at least, my trying at least, to be presentable to you on a Sunday morning at least, what does that do for me before God? And my point is that it does functionally nothing when it comes to relating to Him. That the place that I land that gives me hope and gives me meaning, gives me peace, actually has nothing to do with my striving or my discipline, my consistency or failure in it, but has everything to do with trusting alone that God has done what he has done and has invited me into that space. And so the follow-up question I have, if all that were stripped away from me, would God be enough? Or is somehow, is somehow, and here's what I really don't want for you and I really don't want for me, is somehow my sense of self-worth, your sense of self-worth, your desire to work and be efficient, be kind, be loving, be moral, be ethical, and I appreciate all that, by the way, is that somehow intertwined and has gotten us confused? Has that somehow made us confused that God will relate to me because I'm faithful to Him? Because I know people who aren't, right? I know people who never show up in church. I know people who are living this way and living that way. When Abram has this covenant cut with God and God walks through it alone, and then Jesus later comes and says, I have a new covenant for you built on that covenant, creates this difficult reality that says it is as simple as trust that gets us what we are looking for. It's the place that we can rest. It's a place, truly, where no fear can reach. And here's the reason why fear can't reach that place. Because if I'm honest with you, if you know me at all, and you may not know this depending on how well you know me, but I think, I think probably weekly I deal with some levels of insecurity, sometimes much deeper than others. Feeling inadequate, feeling like I haven't done enough or you know, measured up enough or maybe won't you know, perform enough to some people's expectations. I don't know if that's ever going to go away from me. And that may be a part of your life, too. I think it's a part of our shared humanity. But in that space, I begin to think about, why is that? Why, why do I feel these things, and, and what does it create in me? And it creates stress and anxiety, for sure. But underneath that, then I ask the question, what if I couldn't do any of the things that I could currently do? Would God be enough? You know, would God be enough for me or not? What if you couldn't do all the awesome things you can do? Would God be enough? Or somehow, that somehow I get it confused, and somehow I get it mixed up, and did somehow I think, am I somehow spending my life, and are you somehow spending your life with some kind of hybrid mix of God is definitely there, and I'm going to believe in him, but I'm also going to work pretty hard. I'm also going to be good. I'm going to work hard to love my wife and love my kids and love my spouse. I'm going to really work hard to give and volunteer and be faithful. Like I'm going to work really hard there. And Somehow we've conflated the two and said, yep, God is worthy to be trusted, but I'm also doing a pretty good job, and I'm working in this thing a little bit. And I'm just telling you that that space where God says, no, your 
faith, your faith, I'm going to credit that to you as righteousness. You, the work that you do has nothing to do with your salvation or your acceptance before God. And so when fear can't touch this place, fear can touch my insecurities in a hurry, but fear can't touch the place where I see that God alone has come to me and come to you and said, trust me, trust me, trust me. I alone am the place where all your strivings can cease. All your fears go away. And this is the beauty of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so I'll ask this question with reference and with recognition of my you two friends here, I guess. Have you found what you're looking for? Truthfully, at the end of the day, has your soul found rest? Apart from what you do, apart from your work, apart from your identity, apart from your energies, has your soul found rest? In Christ alone. Because I love the song that we're going to sing here in just a minute. It talks about finding this peace, finding this space in Christ alone, where strivings, the opening part of the song ends, you know, begins with, where strivings cease, where no longer am I striving, I'm resting. And so I just want to ask you to consider the question, what if all of a sudden you could no longer do all the awesome things you can do? What does it look like to trust again that from the starting point of all the things that we do in our faith and all the things you do in your life, at the starting point, isn't because you're incredible or I'm incredible or we work well, but the starting point is God himself has come to us through Christ. And from that point, we move forward. Now, next week, I want to talk about what happens when faith doesn't seem to be working. And I'm looking forward to that conversation next week. Will you pray with me? Good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be together this morning, and I pray that you would give us the um, courage to trust again, the courage to ask the questions about what our, where our foundation really lies, where our sense of security lies, where our confidence in our relationship with you lies. I pray that you would give us the honesty to consider whether our relationship with you is really built from this trust cornerstone where belief and trust alone is really placing us in a place where you credit righteousness to us. You give that to us because of who you are. So I pray that you would give us the courage to revisit and reconsider again that indeed our relationship can be in Christ alone. We find our hope. We find our strength. May we have the conversations we need to as a result of that. We pray this in Jesus' name.